Welcome, this is the Black Dahlia and Blue Dahlia podcast, episode 8. I'm your host, Scott Tracy. In the news this day, a most significant and unexpected event, the police have evidence from the killer. As promised, a package is sent to the examiner. This act separates the Black Dahlia Avenger from other criminals the Los Angeles police have handled previously, and it separates the Black Dahlia murder from all other lone women murders in this time period. Everything that we have learned to this point in terms of how newspapers are different, local versus out of town, and the influence of the police in terms of the slant of the story, because image and politics play a role in what is written and what is omitted. All of these factors are taken to another level when we compare the first two days of reporting after the Postal Service hands over the makeshift envelope containing personal items from Elizabeth Short's purse to the police. The envelope is addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers. These words are cutouts sourced from the newspapers themselves, clipped and pasted, giving the envelope the visual of a ransom note. Here is Dahlia's belongings and letter to follow also appear on the outside of the envelope. There's no handwriting inside or outside. The envelope is postmarked January 24th and has two three-cent stamps. The belongings smell of gasoline and there are smudges and fingerprints on the envelope. Let's begin with the Los Angeles Times reporting a handmade envelope containing the Black Dahlia's birth certificate, address book, and other papers mailed in Los Angeles was received at the working post office at 5 p.m. and turned over to the police. The envelope, 8 by 3.5 inches, contains so many leads we don't know which to choose first, Detective Sergeants Brown and Cummings declared. The officers decided that the envelope's contents were mailed by someone who had seen Miss Short after her last known companion, Robert Manley, had left her at the Biltmore January 9th. Manley, police said, reported that he'd seen the address book in her purse. Cummings and Brown said they believed the letter was mailed by someone, possibly a former landlord who had no connection to the killing. Well, the landlord is a one-time hypothesis. We won't hear of it again. But this initial guess is based on the assumption of the police that a killer would never help them. No doubt Richardson explains the killer has followed through on his declaration to give the papers more material. The envelope's contents give off an odor of gasoline, and the officers theorized the sender may have intended to burn them and then changed his mind. Quote, the address book bound in brown leather had 1937 and the name Mark M. Hansen printed on the cover. Homicide detectives said it was loaded with names of men and women, each of which will be checked for possible leads to the slaying. 
Note that the appointment book is 10 years old. So Beth is going to use that as a notebook, not a calendar. Let's look at a, another paper from California. This is the Bakersfield Californian. Same day. A dozen clear fingerprints on a crude patchwork letter, which was mailed with other personal effects of slain Elizabeth Short. The fingerprints were sent to Washington for checking while police investigated the names listed in the address book, many of them new to the investigation. Well, the importance of the fingerprint evidence cannot be understated. Quote, a dozen clear fingerprints. End quote. That's reported in Boston, in Manhattan, in Nashville, all the newspapers throughout America, but it, that sentence is not seen in the local papers not in the Times, the Examiner, or the Herald. The New York Daily News and other out-of-town newspapers publish a photo of LAPD fingerprint man George Wheeler lifting prints from the Black Dahlia Avengers envelope. There's no picture of Wheeler in the Times or in the Examiner. Well, why would the Los Angeles Press not tell the world about the clear fingerprints when other papers did? Note what the Los Angeles Times article states, someone, possibly the sadistic killer himself, who took elaborate plans to conceal his identity. Two good sets of fingerprints were obtained from the outside envelope, but officers feared they would be those of postal employees. No prints were found on the objects contained in the letter. End quote. What a different slant on the presentation of the facts. Notice that the Times calls the fingerprints a good set. The out-of-town papers say clear prints. Note how the newspaper concludes the killer took elaborate plans to conceal his identity. This is the LAPD sanitized version of the facts. As a suggestion that the prints might be postal employees, equally so, is it hard for the LAPD to eliminate postal employees? No, it's an easy thing to do. All postal employees are fingerprinted when they apply for the job. The FBI has the prints of every postal worker. No doubt the few Los Angeles postal workers and inspectors that touched the envelope were eliminated privately and quickly. There's constant mention of the cleverness of the killer in the Los Angeles papers and clearly the LAPD has an agenda to exploit the killer's ego. They desire the phone calls and the letters to continue. The Black Dahlia Avenger would obviously be unlikely to do so if he thought the FBI had clear prints. The killer has promised a letter to follow. So the press agenda is, as always, selling papers to the entire city. More papers, the better. The LAPD is just trying to reach one person, the killer. The newspapers have reported that the Los Angeles Police Department got an anonymous telephone call. Don't try to find the short girl's murderer because you won't. Then the caller hung up. So the Black Dahlia Venture has called Richardson, mailed purse contents to the LAPD, warned police to not look for him, and disposed of the purse where it could be seen, as Beth's black purse and black shoes are spotted atop restaurant garbage. 
Perhaps the killer did call Tony Smith after all. The police are determined to have the Black Dahlia Avenger continue to communicate with them in hopes that he makes a mistake. They don't want the killer to think that he's already made a mistake by leaving his clear fingerprints on the envelope. The headline on this day in the Boston Globe focuses on a witness. Quote, admits she knows who killed Dahlia. California police say Carol Marshall, 21, offers to name Slayer of Elizabeth Short if the reward is big enough. Six foot one inch blonde admitted today that she knew who killed Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. Carol Marshall, 21, was arrested at Barstow, California, about 150 miles from Los Angeles. The girl and a male companion were arrested on suspicion of auto theft after they tried to sell a 1942 model car for $700. Subsequent investigation disclosed that four persons in a bar had heard her admit she knew who murdered the Black Dahlia, but it was afraid to tell. Meanwhile, police are attempting to identify a dozen clear fingerprints on a crude patchwork letter found in the mails containing personal effects of the slain girl. While Carol Marshall's male companion is a World War II vet, 25 years old, Charles Wells Jr., when his father hears of his son's misadventures, he tells the police that Jr. is suffering from shell shock and to hold him until he drives to Barstow. Wells and Marshall met in a Los Angeles cafe Thursday and the idea of a road trip took hold at night and the adventure-seeking couple got as far as Barstow, north and east of Los Angeles on Highway 15, the road to Las Vegas. Carol Marshall is from Tulare, California, halfway between Fresno and Bakersfield. The San Bernardino Sun covers the Central Valley well and that newspaper tells us more. It was a breakfast cafe with a bar where the cafe bartender and waitress overheard Marshall talk about the Black Dahlia case. Police were contacted but arrive after lunch at 2 p.m. The couple is gone. However, a service station owner east of Barstow is suspicious when Carol and Charles try to sell him a five-year-old car for $700. Police are contacted, and this time they arrive soon enough to bring them into custody. She will be dismissed as uh, a thrill-seeker on the next day. Oddly, Carol Marshall is described as a blonde Amazon in the newspapers, but all of her pictures show her to be a brunette. A minor mystery that has nothing to do with the larger questions of the unsolved murder of the Black Dahlia. But let's turn to uh, the news of the next day, the 26th, because there's a significant change in the hypothesis of the gasoline. Notice how the story spins. This is from the San Francisco Examiner. Before placing the envelope in the mail, he first soaked it in gasoline a precaution intended to destroy all fingerprints. This move was regarded as classifying the killer as a person versed in scientific crime detection. 
Gasoline dissolves the minute quantities of oil with which fingerprints are formed, thus destroying the fingerprints. Comparatively, few persons are aware of this. Well, first of all, gasoline is a much more common solvent and cleaner at this time than many people realize today. My local post office displays an old wooden rubber stamp behind the glass in the lobby as a historical piece, and that wooden rubber stamp instructs postal employees to clean it by soaking it in gasoline. The killer has self-manufactured this envelope. Glue is used to hold the folded paper together. The gasoline weakens the hold of the glue from the inside and the makeshift envelope self-opens in the hands of postal workers. This is why the post office holds the envelope initially. If there is gasoline on the outside of the envelope, the pasted letters and words that make up the address would fall off in no time at all. So, the police are selling a story that gasoline is on outside of the envelope, as it would make it difficult to get the 10 clear fingerprints as reported. Let's remind ourselves of the Times' previous day's statement, quote, the envelope contents gave off an odor of gasoline, and officers theorized the sender may have intended to burn them and then changed his mind, end quote. Yesterday's news was a landlord sent the evidence. Yesterday, the gasoline on the photos and address book inside the envelope, and that makes sense. Clearly, the day one hypothesis makes a sense that the day two hypothesis does not. Because today, the killer that sent the evidence put gasoline on the outside of the envelope because he's clever and wants to defeat the police. It makes no sense. But that's what's reported. The police didn't expect a killer to mail evidence to them, but we have historical precedent. Certainly Jack the Ripper famously wrote to the newspapers about his crimes and his craft. The Ripper mailed a box containing a letter and a partial kidney to George Lusk the president of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. It's clear that Jack the Ripper was an opportunistic killer. Therefore, he felt free to brag about his killings since he couldn't be connected to them. His selection of victims was random, based on opportunity. Is this how the Black Dahlia Avenger sees himself? It's a good question. How likely is it that the Black Dahlia Avenger realizes he could be remembered as the Jack the Ripper of 1947 by sending proof of his crime? The inclusion of the address book in the belongings indicates the killer believes the names in the book present no more danger to his capture than Elizabeth Short's birth certificate or social security card. Remember, the Black Dahlia Avenger told Richardson that he would mail, quote, some of the things she had with her when she disappeared. Well, some is not all. Did the Avenger keep any souvenirs? The police certainly see the address book as a substantial clue, and it is up to a point. There are pages missing. When I first read about the missing pages, I assumed the killer had removed them. However, nearly 100 pages have been torn out of the original 400. 
So uh, I doubt that the killer's name is likely written in the book a hundred times. Beth has used this 10-year-old appointment book for notes. Among her belongings were four torn notebook scraps of paper, one with Jimmy Harrigan's army base phone number, another with Carl Balsinger's phone number, the name of Jimmy Bifulco in pencil, and Wayne Gregg written in ink. So Beth tore pages. I think it's likely that Beth might start a letter on a page or use the notebook as a diary and then remove those pages. The killer certainly could have kept the address book as a souvenir, given that it has Mark Hansen's name on it, not Elizabeth Short's name. But seeking attention, this potential trophy is handed to the police. Investigators are going to compare the writing in the notebook with letters that Beth sent to her mother and determine that most of the writing in the book was Beth's, but about three or four pages are written in another hand. Detective Finnis Brown stated, the pages were torn out in three places, just a few pages, five or six in one place, and another place, one, two, three, four, but it adds up to nearly 100 pages. So the killer calls Richardson at the examiner on the 23rd. He mails an envelope of the Dolly's belongings to the press on the 24th. The killer said that a letter would follow. On the 25th, the killer calls the police to say, don't look for me, you won't find me. So that's three messages in three days and a promise of more to come. The LAPD wants to do whatever it takes to have the killer continue to stay in touch. The postal employee's fingerprint angle is the soup that the police wish the killer to consume. It is the advice of Paul DeRiver that stroking the ego and giving him a certain amount of tension is going to bring the killer out in the open and hopefully he will give himself up or confess. Back to the news of the day. First to be questioned was Mark Hansen, whose name was stamped on the cover. Hansen was eliminated after asserting he had not seen the girls since last November. Hansen, a wealthy middle-aged theater owner who rented rooms in his home at 6024 Carlos Avenue, said he supposed that Miss Short took the notebook from his desk. Robert Gessinger, whose business card was contained in the envelope, admitted acquaintance with Miss Short, but told officers he had no contact with her since last October and likewise was ruled out. Contacted at the Santa Barbara Air Base where he's a civilian mechanic, Jimmy Harrigan, another name in the book, said he picked up Elizabeth Short about December 1st and took her to a night spot, but that a second date the following evening ended his association with her. Harrigan is eliminated as a suspect. Well, it's good to get your name in the paper, but less fun to be in the news. As the police follow up on these names, these men are burdened with the publication of their names as if they are suspects. The police soon discover that these men have similar stories, and they're all members of the I dated Elizabeth Short but haven't seen her for months and didn't kill her club. Among the belongings sent to the papers is a newspaper clipping announcing the death of Major Matt Gordon. 
Gordon wrote a letter to his family in which he states he might bring home a bride from Medford, Massachusetts. In the copy of the newspaper story that Beth has in her purse, the name of the bride or bride-to-be was scratched out, and Beth's friends have reported that Miss Short frequently showed the clipping to them. Beth scratched out the other woman's name because it was incorrect, she said. Odd. Well, raise your hand if you have a newspaper clipping at home with your name of your lover and the other woman whose name is crossed out. Well, it just doesn't make any sense. I wonder how many acquaintances of Elizabeth believe her story. Were Beth and Matt engaged? They went on one and only one date together. Wikipedia says that Beth was engaged because Beth told others she was engaged. Well, Beth tells stories. Is there a ring? How could there be? The question is best answered by the Gordon family. Quote, although they were said to have only one date, according to Mrs. Matt Gordon of Pueblo, Colorado, the couple's romance developed through correspondence. Mrs. Gordon learned of the romance through a letter her son wrote to her on May 5, 1945. Mom, you think she really loves me? It kind of looks like she does. In 11 days, she wrote me 27 letters. Mrs. Val Gordon of Riverside, California, sister-in-law of Major Matt Gordon, had been corresponding with Elizabeth Short based on a comment by Matt Gordon that Beth was, quote, a refined and educated girl. Her husband, Captain Vincent Gordon, said that correspondence between Elizabeth Short and his wife was discontinued about eight months ago when Elizabeth said she was coming west to work as a model. The relationship between the Gordons and Elizabeth Short already had cooled considerably after Captain Gordon's brother was killed in combat in India. The Gordons said Elizabeth Short had written the dead flyer's parents asking for money immediately after his death. They added that since no engagement existed, they couldn't understand the motive for her request. All right. Matt's family says Beth and Matt were not engaged. That's good enough for me. But Major Matt Gordon's death greatly impacted Beth. She never works again. Her emotional wounds are real, even if her engagement was wishful. A pair of black suede shoes and a black plastic purse described as similar to the articles owned by Miss Short were picked up about a mile from the vacant lot where her body was left January 15th. Robert Hyman, neighborhood cafe manager, told police he spotted the shoes and purse atop a trash can early today. The police bring in Mrs. French to identify the purse and shoes. She is unable to do so. Robert Manley recognizes the metal taps on her shoes that he paid for and mentions that inside the purse, he smells her distinct perfume. It's a strong scent. It has to be in order for him to find it. Ten days later, inside her purse that was tossed in the cafe restaurant garbage for a day and then spent a day at the city dump. The killer doesn't consider the shoes and purse a trophy. So our question for the day, I don't have the answer. Do you think the killer expected the purse to be found? 
There's certainly no opportunity for the press to highlight how clever the killer is for leaving the purse and shoes where they would be found. The killer does not splash gasoline on the purse. Indeed, the killer does send other messages to the authorities, yet doesn't splash gasoline on those letters. Many of these so-called Avenger letters are clearly hoaxes, but the jokers that send them don't put gasoline on the outside or inside of those envelopes either. The Black Dahlia Avenger has kept this evidence for seven days. These missing seven days means that the killer is not in a hurry. He's not worried that his stash of incriminating evidence would be found. One more thing before I go. The Los Angeles Police Department relies on Dr. J. Paul DeRiver for advice. In time, they will pay a significant price for that trust. DeRiver is commonly quoted in the Los Angeles newspapers, and historically his image is boosted in the press, and he enjoys the limelight. Quote, Until recently, Dr. Driver was called in only after a crime had been committed. Now, under the recently issued examination order, his work is largely preventative. Dr. Driver said he will classify and catalog to type every known moral offender in Los Angeles. Good intentions. But their issues with many of his cases Consider the 10 most famous Deriver cases. Six of them are burdened with significant psychological and legal misjudgments. Albert Dyer and Robert Folks are innocent and sent to the gas chamber. A judge reprimands Deriver for his overstepping his bounds in the Chloe Davis murder investigation. DeWitt Cook's treatment pre-trial should have led to a mistrial. And lastly, Deriver is going to be fired for his unprofessional behavior in the Black Dahlia case. Police officials have ordered that all persons arrested on suspicion of moral code offenses be given a psychiatric examination by Dr. Paul DeRiver. Pre-trial, DeRiver will prepare a complete case history, including fingerprints and photographs of each suspect. One can admire Driver's intentions to make the world safer through his unique skills, to be of service to the police and to the public. Over time, it becomes clear that his skill set is not equal to his self-image nor to his ambitions. Driver is not supervised. His methodology is an infusion of the ideas of Sigmund Freud and Cesar Lombroso. So, say hello to phrenology, penis envy, and social Darwinism. Lombroso was an Italian army surgeon in the late 1800s who became the administrative doctor of an insane asylum, later a university professor of forensic medicine. On a positive note, Cesare Lombroso is likely the first person to use the term criminology. Lombroso's belief that criminals are born criminals, meaning that they don't have free will, allows for the establishment of hospitals for the criminally insane rather than housing them in traditional jails. And that's it for the positive column. Professors, police officers, and politicians all came to replace Lombroso's concepts with more educated, useful, and nuanced paradigms in Lombroso's lifetime. His ideas are substantially discredited 
in most of Europe and the Americas. However, the racial stereotyping was appealing to the Italian fascists, so his philosophies had a greater influence in Italy until the downfall of Mussolini. Clearly, a Lombroso-inspired detective would have an impossible task to find a serial killer or a white-collar criminal, someone involved in bribery, or political corruption, child molestation in the church, internal police issues. The list of limitations can be as long as we wanted it to be. With his experience in post-mortem examinations, Lombroso comes to believe specific anatomical abnormalities reveal criminal character. So special attention is given to asymmetrical faces, excessive body hair, ears of unusual size, jaws that jut forward, sloped foreheads, and left-handed individuals. Criminals look like criminals because a criminal is a lower caste of human, closer to apes in Lombroso's view. A murderer or thief does not care about the suffering he has caused because a criminal is like a beast. Why should the elite members of society be surprised when animals act like animals? Lombroso's classist philosophy excludes sociological, psychological, cultural, religious, and environmental factors from criminology. Racism is embraced vigorously in his descriptive language. Mongolian eyes, negroid jawbone, pygmy-flared nostrils. Savages tattoo their bodies, so sailors with tattoos must be savages because they're celebrating the rising up of the inner beast to the surface. Since criminals are born, there's no value to attempt to rehabilitate them. So, when one reads about Deriver's efforts to categorize sexual criminals, it's necessary to remember his view that criminals are born, not made. And these measurements will reveal character. Therefore, Deriver's records are filled with comments concerning penis length, observation on the amount of hair on the body, and the width of the nostrils. Deriver's questions of the suspect shows weighted focus on masturbation and oral sex because those are criminal acts in 1947, acts of a beast, not normal, pleasurable activity. Dr. Deriver believes oral sex is an exclusively homosexual behavior. On February 12th of 1946, the Herald Express publishes an article by Deriver in which the noted quote, psychiatrist and Los Angeles Police Department alienist, applied the technique of depth psychology to analyze the face of the torso murderer, Arthur Eggers. What is depth psychology? The Wikipedia answer concerns the greats of modern psychology as they grapple with the role of the unconscious mind. So we're talking about Freud, Young, Adler, and Rank. Depth psychology categorizes that the psyche process is partially conscious, partially unconscious, and partially semi-conscious. But no wiki exists to help us with Deriver's Lombroso-inspired interpretive pseudoscience. To Deriver, his concept of depth 
Psychology is more personal. As far as I can tell, Driver makes it up. He jabberwalks depth and psychology to create a false aura that respectable scientific principles are at work. But in fact, Driver is going to read the shape of the human face in the manner of a palm reader. He'll cut a photo in half lengthwise and mirror it back to have one face made of two left halves and another face with two right halves. He believes this reveals the inner secrets and struggles of the criminal. Like a tarot card reader, Deriver wraps his pseudoscience in poetic innuendo and presents it with profound confidence. Quote, On the right side of the face, one sees an endeavor or attempt on the part of the personality to mask the true individual, hiding the despair and moroseness. On the left side, one gets the impression that he's a haggard old man, not too friendly, and far from a pleasant person, with nerves of steel and a will of iron, while study of the nose shows through the wildness of the nostrils an indication of great passion and sensuality. He's a thinker and a planner. His jaw and chin are well-developed, giving him an air of determination so often found in the phlegmatic, who are not easily aroused. But once the fire is touched, know no limit and will go to any length to achieve their purpose. End quote. It's necessary to realize the limitations of this expert that the LAPD re relies on to give them advice as to how to reel in the killer of Belth Short by stroking the killer's ego. Lombroso's experience observing the insane weighs heavily in the framing of his theory. Similarly, Deriver works with those who confess. So Deriver comes to believe that all murderers carry a burden with them and will confess if given the chance. This simple notion will be Deriver's undoing in time. It's easy to dismiss this concept of confession because of the vast number of cold case murders. This one, of course. No one has confessed to the murder of, of John Benet Ramsey or Jack the Ripper or the Zodiac. And it's not just the famous cases that are unsolved. 40% of all homicide cases go unsolved, according to the FBI crime report. Since 1980, there have been 250,000 unsolved murders. All right, that's a quarter of a million people who proved Deriver's theory wrong. Psychopaths have no burden to unload. They don't feel remorse. Serial killers are not likely to confess or to confide in friends or relatives. But because Deriver is, expects people to confess, he's looking at a small piece of the pie. Deriver is significantly more helpful than a tarot card reader but sadly less helpful than a psychic because a psychic knows that there's limits to their interpretive skills. Deriver, it turns out, is a better salesman than psychiatrist. Thank you for listening. Join me for Podcast 9. A waitress gets into a car. The man behind the wheel tells her he's going to kill her like he did the Black Dahlia.